0: It has become an icon in the area and has served countless thousands in a variety of ways during its 45-year history. Fees have never been charged for any services, materials, medications, or supplies provided at the Berkeley Free Clinic. Income has been generated solely via individual or organizational donations and government programs. To volunteer your time or to make a donation, or for more information, visit berkeleyfreeclinic.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Candy. Yeah.
1: You know. Well, I think weddings used to be that was one of the ways, you know, people didn't get together as often. And uh, you know, if you're all in these neighboring farms and there's a wedding, that's when you get to see you know, Jenny across the, the farm, the suitor, yeah, and maybe you guys can dance or something. Like get some pie. Get some yeah, some punch and pie together. I mean, I think that was one of there it's such weddings are so ingrained in our culture and you know the question is what is it about us as humans we know that life is impermanent humanity is impermanent all of us die and all that but that we we i'm gonna say force ourselves we choose to engage in contracts of permanence in an impermanent space and then and then we put weird expectations on it through like tv a lot of people say that monogamy is Totally impossible. It is impossible. <laughs> I, I, I just had to say that. Well, okay, I'm going to agree with it in this way, that I no person can ever be truly monogamous because I've had sex with lots of different people in my life, so I am, I've already broken the monogamous thing. I've not been... You know, if you say there's monogamy in your relationship, I think that you can make a contract with each other and say, you know, this is what's happening. And then... Even when people have open relationships, as long as it's open communication, I just, the thing is that I would want to have the conversation with my boyfriend. If he was like, I want to sleep with someone else, I'd be like, what, what can I do? What can, how can we work on this together? That I, so, because I would be, I'm such a jealous person, I would have such a huge problem. I've actually thought about bringing that up to my boyfriend.
2: I, I've actually, because, you know, even in past relationships, and I can see this if I do get married, you know, rather than just be the asshole that cheats, oh, which I've true. done that before. Um, I'd rather you just open the lines of communication because I don't believe there's 100% of, no, no one's 100% monogamous, especially if you've been married for a very long time. You hear of people that have been married for 40, 50 years, even my grandparents, they were married for 60 years. My like granddad was probably stepping out a little bit back in his heyday. You know, they were married very young, uh, in the 1930s wow. late 30s and you know th- my granddad was like he was kind of a stunner. He had his own business and what have you and you know
1: and, and, but that was kind of the norm then Of course it was you know there's lots of women in the 30s and 40s um, they were girlfriends like and sure. that was like looked down upon or whatever because you're not getting married you're the mistress. But that was a real
2: thing. That was a a very real
1: thing. I mean, and if you're a woman who maybe isn't as educated or hasn't had the opportunities, and you're trying to take care of yourself because you're not married, and you go down the mistress paths I mean, that was a thing. It still, still kind of is a thing. Yeah. I, I'm sure that I would. I'm sure I would too. I don't think I'm classy enough to be the wife. Because <laughs> well, the thing is that with, with the wife, there's especially in that time period, there, there were certain expectations that were put upon you that this was the role that you fulfill. And and I wonder how many people say, Nah, people aren't like that. There weren't roles, but yeah, I, were. I think there. Yeah. I think
2: that's bullshit. I honestly think that marriage is a business contract. <laughs> I, I really do. I mean, yes, there's love. Yes.
3: We get stuff we both know that we don't talk too much about it. Ain't no real big secret of the same somehow.
0: Hey folks, happy Friday. This is Global Val. Thanks for tuning in to Women's Magazine this afternoon. It is Friday, December 11th, 2015. And I'm back after a two-week hiatus, so it's good to be back here at the Mutiny Radio Studios here in San Francisco. 21st and Florida streets is where we reside and uh, happy to be a part of this community here. Uh, My hometown of San Francisco for many generations now and uh, everybody's uh, kind of... I think San Francisco is kind of everybody's mm, fantasy lover in a way. A lot of people come here and they just like they're like, yeah, this is home. Um, so happy Happy Friday to everybody out there here in the city and beyond. And of course, as Global Val myself, I'm always thinking beyond. I'm always thinking about the wider world. And today, I'm going to be talking to a woman who had been volunteering in greece on the island of lesbos um, with the refugees who are arriving on this beautiful little greek island Um, and there's a lot of different things going on there that on the island of lesbos you have uh, moria which is acting as a registration camp for refugees coming from war-torn areas of the middle east namely syria iraq afghanistan And um, it's as of just a a few weeks ago, it was called one of the worst uh, refugee camps in the world right now because it's so overcrowded and because of the conditions that come with overcrowding. And um, so I'm going to be talking to Erin. She's going to be calling in a few minutes here to Mutiny Radio and uh, to talk to her about the work she was doing out there and to really get more of a grasp of what it's like on the ground, or on the on the shore, so to speak, of uh, where these these people who are fleeing war in their countries um, and taking to the seas in hopes of finding refuge, finding a new home, finding uh, a receptive um, you know group of of people and and on the other side and and hoping that that they and their families can survive uh, most basically and have some sort of uh, life where they're not in danger of having bombs dropped on them and, um, all the, her- the horrors of, of war. Uh, there's so much of it happening right now, unfortunately. And, um, you know, I think for a long time, it's, it's, it's often easy to keep it at arm's length, but, um, we, we have a, a humanitarian refugee crisis happening across the world right now. Millions and millions and millions and millions of people uh, fleeing war and uh, trying to find a new home. So um, I'm happy to be home and very grateful. And I think it also helps us to put everything else into perspective. You know, you may be having kind of a shitty day. Uh, I hope not. You know, I'm having a pretty good day. But, you know, so little things might go wrong or things might not go exactly the way that you want them to. But I think we really need to put in perspective um, the experience of what other people are going through around the world, having to leave their homes, leave everything behind, leave half their family, and uh, get on a boat, get in a raft that may or may not make it across the Aegean Sea, to Greece and the island of Lesbos, where um, so many volunteers have gone to help receive these folks. And we're going to be talking to one of those volunteers. Aaron's going to call in in just a few minutes. So again, thank you for joining me, and uh, let's all be grateful. And uh, let's keep rocking on and spreading the word and spreading the love. This is the 21st century, and that's the least we can do. And it's also the most we can do. So lots of love to everybody out there. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned. And, of course, you can also join us here uh, at Newtony Radio Studios at 21st in Florida, starting at 3 o'clock for the Common Thread Collective Community Open Mic. That is- Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, refugee. That is the theme today. And before Aaron calls in, Aaron, who's been volunteering in Greece on the island of Lesbos, uh, welcoming um, refugees who are coming to the shores of the island, the Greek island, um, I wanted to speak on the theme of housing and home and, and houselessness and homelessness right here in the city of San Francisco. So as uh, many of you are familiar with the recent candidate for mayor, Amy Farrell Weiss, uh, she got a great percentage of the vote. She's a great community organizer. And one of the things that she was running on, one of the things of her, her platform that she was running for mayor on was her idea to have the St. Francis Super Bowl homelessness challenge. Uh, It was in response to the mayor, Mayor Ed Lee, uh, saying that he was going to, you know, push the homeless out of the city uh, in order to host the the Super Bowl um, and potentially a Super Bowl parade or uh, events surrounding the Super Bowl, even though the Niners moved to Santa Clara, in case anybody didn't notice that. Um, Anyhow, uh, so her idea of the St. Francis Super Bowl homelessness challenge has has turned into the St. Francis homelessness challenge. Challenge, and so she is working with a really um, big group of people here in the city. Um, and on January second, they're going to have a big event at Soma Arts Cultural Center from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And that's at 934 Brannon. And they're going to be showcasing healing hubs and sleep sanctuaries. It's going to it's a pilot proposal um, to to deal with uh, chronic houselessness in the city of san francisco so this is going to be a series of workshops and speeches and um, kind of breakout sessions uh learning how learning about modular uh temporary housing and uh how did how it could be done sustainably and so um yeah amy weiss is uh not not sitting down and uh you know taking a back seat after after uh, you know running for mayor and and, and not winning, but um, I think it really propelled her into uh, the next part of her life. And so this big St. Francis Homelessness Challenge is something uh, that everyone can get involved in uh, because it's a growing organic community process. So if you want more information about that, you can go to the website stfrancischallenge.com. That's S A I N T, F R A N C I S, C H A L L E N G E, Saint Francis Challenge, dot com, uh, dealing with homelessness, houselessness, right here in in our city, in our fair city, and uh, so I'm gonna play a little more music for you here, and uh, we'll wait for. Aaron to give us a call in and again thanks for waiting uh, thanks for being patient while I took a little vacation a much needed rest um and I just want to remind everybody out there if you're feeling stressed out and you think oh my god I can't even take any time off I can't I got so much shit to do Oh, uh, what am I going to do can I even like take a break the answer is yes and you should it's healthy just do it Welcome back. I'm your DJ. I'm Global Val here. Of course, that was Grand Funk Railroad uh, getting closer to my home. And we'll we'll listen to the rest of it later because today's show is about home and leaving your home and trying to find refuge on new shores. And on the line, I have uh, Aaron Weber. Um, who's called in because she recently spent some time in Greece, working with uh, on the island of Lesbos, uh, working with the refugees who are showing up there um, in droves. Erin, um, thank you for calling.
4: Thank you. I'm 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 so
0: pleased that we get a chance to to talk to you today. Thank you for being my guest on Women's Magazine here on Mutiny Radio.fm FM, um, broadcasting you know streaming around the planet on the internet. Um, hoping to reach uh, lots of ears out there, to really get the on-the-ground story uh, from you, from someone who's been there on the shores of where so many refugees are are coming to. Um, so, tell us about how you got involved in volunteering on the island of Lesbos in Greece.
4: Okay, well, I'm I, I love volunteering. I'll just say that after of that, and I live in. Um in Los Angeles, and uh, I participate in some Skid Row action here. And uh, over the summer, I was in Greece in March, and then um, when I came back to the States, there was, you know, all of the the media talking about the economic crisis in Greece, the situation. And with that was a paired situation of the refugee crisis, where, you know, I started to see these images of people um, on boats, getting pulled from the raft into other ships and I thought you know, I knew I was returning to Greece and I, I told myself when I go, this is what I'm going to do. So that's how the, the seed started.
0: So when you so, Oh yeah, go go on. I, no,
4: yeah.
0: go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tell us your story about, you know, how you know, so so you you decided to since you were going to Greece, you wanted to get involved in helping the refugees. Um, Yeah, tell us your story. Where where did it start? Yeah,
4: I did some research. It really spoke to me, these images of people in the sea, and um, I did a lot of my own research. And um, what had happened was when I went to Athens, I just started to, you know, tune in to the the frequency of what was happening and was very fortunate to kind of get the same response about a particular group that is in Athens called Allos Anthropos, And Alice Anthropos is a self-organized volunteer group um, that came about from the economic crisis, started by a man named Kostos, and he just started feeding himself. Um, He was out of work, uh, practically homeless, and he started feeding himself and friends, and it took off into a big endeavor. Right now they feed, um, you know, hundreds or thousands of people per day, depending on the situation, and they were actually, they were also on Mitalini and Lesbos helping. So first I got involved with them, and through them and through another serendipitous meeting with um, someone at a New Age bookstore, I um, was invited to go to Lesbos um, to help set up some alternative shelter housing from a group in Hamburg. So that's how I first arrived to Lesbos, um, was from this um, being involved kind of having my antennas out and the feelers out in Athens about the situation. Um, I want to say prior to that, prior to going to Lesbos, I had visited um, a stadium um, there that houses refugees and is currently still housing uh, refugees in the city of Athens. It's an old sports stadium because I went to go meet the group Allos Anthropos for the first time when they were doing a cooking, um, uh, cooking gig there and uh, that was incredibly overwhelming. So that was actually my first introduction to what I was then going to see on Lesbos.
0: So when you got there, where did you start with your volunteering, and what did you see?
4: Okay, I'm a self-organized volunteer, so I um, am not affiliated with any group. Um, I went with uh, this friend to first, Help, up, uh, help with this group called More Than Shelters, and we were putting up housing at a camp called Peekpa, which you had asked me about, and while I was at Peekpa, I kind of was, you know, scouting out what else I could do, you know, where I would be needed, and it just organically kind of, you know, shifted into a space that allowed me to, you um, do what I needed to do for my volunteering skills and needs and what I can contribute because day-to-day on Lesbos is extremely chaotic and things are changing day-to-day. So um, God, I, this is such a long topic. I, <laughs> I know. Like well, t- begin, t- tell but... us
0: about Camp uh, Peakpa. What goes okay. on there?
4: Peekpa is a great uh, camp that was organized in 2012. It's a uh, A summer camp that was taken over um, by a group. And again, I want to stress that my uh, love for volunteering comes from a very grassroots level, which is about self-organizing. I'm not one to jump into any kind of giant organization. And the thing that's great about the Greeks that I noticed was their... They are still self-organized in a way that is, is so different from being part of an NGO or being part of a governmental-sponsored organization, because there's no bureaucracy. I mean, if there is, there's very little. So Pikpa is an example of that, where some people came together, also from Athens, and from the island of Lesbos, and decided to start um, taking in refugees as early as 2012, and now it's become a special camp for special cases. So families that are there are there because they have lost family members in the shipwrecks that are happening quite often during the crossing from Turkey through the Aegean to the island. Um, people who are sick or injured. There were some people who had been injured in bombings from their, their home countries they were coming from. Um, so. Pikpa is a special case where families can be together and there they can also get registered and they can see social workers and psychologists and doctors and also cook their own food. So they're not at the mercy of the other camp where they have to wait in line for food. They might not get food. Pikpa runs itself as an organization, so twice a day you can go, line up, um, get food supplies, check out cooking gear that you need because you can cook in your own, you know, your own um, house, your own tent that's set up, and they're all pretty much hard-shelled, you know, tents. Or, um, So it's a, it's a very, very, very different system um, than the other camp. And at Pikpa, I found where I was most useful was doing an art program because I am uh, teaching art sometimes to children here in Los Angeles and other places. So after the the shelter, the more than shelters left, I decided that that's where I was best needed and then organically started a, um, program with the children with another woman who was also there and, um, we focused on that.
0: How were you able to communicate with everyone there? Because, I mean, there's, People, the refugees who are coming to 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 Greece are coming from lots of different places. What's the language barrier like? How are people communicating?
4: Yeah, that's true. That's interesting. You know, I and I can say too that before I went, you know, I saw in the media it's a Syrian refugee, and if you notice now, they're changing um, the the title. You know, it's it's becoming um, it's becoming more than just a Syrian refugee crisis. And I was totally like, oh, it's Syrian refugees. Well, when I got to Lesbos, you know, it's not the case. There's people from uh, Afghanistan, from Yemen, Jordan, you know, Palestine, uh, Pakistan, Burma, from all over. Um, Mainly at Tikta, we had a lot of people from Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. So the languages are Arabic. Farsi, Urdu, Kurdish, Um, and, you know, children are quite remarkable because they're showing different ways to communicate. So my level of uh, of learning very basic um, words from different languages just came from communicating with the children. And then, of course, you have people that are speaking English. You have a few translators that are floating in and out. But, you know, humans are so amazing that we definitely find a way to communicate with each other. And I think this basic way of learning how to communicate with each other also comes from compassion and listening. You know, people want to tell their story and um, just spending time with people, you know, just in the the pure physical realm is very magical. And then you start to realize, hey, you know, I'm actually having a conversation with everyone. You know, it becomes very basic. So, um, yeah, I'm, yeah
0: and that's got to be i mean that's got to be so important for these people who have fled their home countries fled war persecution um you know anything that would that would make you you or i get on a raft and 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 hop into the off, on into the pacific and go someplace you know i mean it's such a it's it, it's 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 just so powerful um and uh but but i love how you, how you say that that the communication really comes from the the compassion, the human compassion, and and I think that's something that's so missing from the mainstream media these days. And so I'm so glad you've called in today, to uh, to give us the give us the real give us the give us the real deal, Erin. Um, thanks so much for doing this. Um, and thank you for your work. So um,
4: yeah, I also want to say with the children too, which is so special, was every every almost every child told me i love you Aww. you know i mean how special is that there were so many pictures being drawn with the words i love you you know and this is just uh just beyond words you yeah. know and so if this is the, the 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 root of the communication and this is how we're starting the communication you know this is like this is this is all we need
0: starting with love thank goodness yes. um so when they, because uh, uh, PICPA, Camp PICPA is for kind of these special cases, but uh, spe- people who have these kind of special situations, where are they going afterwards? How long are they staying there?
4: Okay, yeah, and I also wanted to say that PICPA also is, because um, I was just talking to my friend, Dr. Richard Dean, who's still on Lesbos, um, whom I met there, and PICPA also acts as kind of a, a warehouse, too, that, gets a lot of donations, so a lot of the stuff that's distributed out to the other reaches of the island comes from Pikpa. There's also a large cooking group that comes in and cooks for you know a few thousand people that then take the food to Camp Moria, which I'm sure we'll discuss in a bit. So Pikpa is a great epicenter where there's a lot of um, self-organized work going on to um, maintain a lot of the structure that's needed for the island. And when you're there, you'll see all different types of volunteering groups coming in just because I think it's such a magical place and a, a place, you know, a breath of fresh air for a lot of people to come to. So in Picpa, people are fortunate because they can register there or um, they are usually accompanied to be registered. So they don't have to go through any of the hardships that other people do in, in the other camps in, in Moria. Um, so usually when they're at Pikpa, they are, in in general, when people are leaving Lesbos, they are going to Athens. In fact, almost everyone is going to Athens by ferry. Then the stories are different. Some might have arrangements where they're going right away to a country, a relative that they might have in, you know, a, um, a country of the EU. Um, but most often, and I, this is not necessarily the case for Picpah, but as you've heard in the news, a lot, most everyone has to go from Athens to the Macedonian border and then cross that border on foot. So if you want to then take, we can take the conversation then into the the not so good news <laughs> away from Picpah. um which, you know, people are very fortunate to be there, but the general percentage of the refugees, probably about 90%, have to go on this other route, which is by foot up through Macedonia. And as of now, I'm not sure if you've heard the news, but the border in Macedonia and Greece, um, Idomini, has been closed. And they're only allowing Syrians, Iraqi, and Afghanis to cross the border and then they're sending everyone back and making them go back to Athens. And what's happened in the last few days now, there's been riots, and now the police are there, the Greek police are there uh, deporting people by bus back to Athens, which means that at the moment and in the next coming weeks, there's gonna be a huge influx of people coming back into the city, into the stadium Galatia had mentioned, into another stadium now that they're emptying out and preparing to hold all these refugees.
0: Oh, my because goodness. Because the
4: first step for refugees to cross into any of the other EU countries is they have to walk by foot first over the Macedonian border.
0: That's, the, that's, the, that's where everyone's being funneled that through. Is
4: the, that's the second part of the journey. You know, the, the first is arriving, and that's not even counting what people have to go through to arrive to Greece. Right. But the first part is coming to Lesbos and then the second and then from then on there's a whole other um there's a whole other journey. So, um you know, it's it's uh you see, you know, it's great you see in the media, okay, there's a family, Syrian family being welcomed in Canada or there's p- persons accepting this family, but in reality we're talking about almost millions of people, right? without a place to go and stuck in between all these neither worlds of borders throughout the EU and various camps that are set up in different European Union countries and people are there like in our own camp structures that we have here at the borders you know people can be there for um, months, years uh, we have no idea what's going to happen now in the eu there's lots of talk of deportation so we're not sure but
0: um right but and it, it begs the question of deportation to where right that's right and being that you, you are in greece and and greece going through its economic um you know troubles uh which is an understatement i guess um I mean it it must put a a big strain on on Greece. How are the people of Greece uh taking to this situation?
4: Well, I mean that's an interesting question, you know, because I'm not really sure how the general public um feels. Uh I can only gauge by what I witnessed, which was like I said these um this group, Alas Anthropos and again, people organizing themselves to, like, Pikpa is, a, a they're, they're Greeks that organize the camp. So I, I, I see so much self-service coming. Now, as far as, like, the general public, I'm not sure how they feel about the situation yeah. or the crisis, but I can say that coming from... <laughs> As an American and coming from the world we live in, especially you know in in LA, that I see more people breaking bread with other people in Greece than I have anywhere else. You know, so far in the past few months, just being being back in the states. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's a it's a it's a different kind of culture, you know, and. I would joke with the guys coming from Syria, and I would, you know, I would always ask people, well, where are you going to? And they would say, oh, Germany, or, oh, you know, (laughs) um, I want to go to, mostly everyone said Germany or Sweden, and I was like, why it's so cold? Because to me, the culture seems so similar, the Greek culture, you know, to a culture of the Middle East where you have more connection with family and food and community. So I'm not really sure what's going to happen in the next days and with the greek crisis and this is you know the interesting thing about the situation is it's developing and changing every day and i'm daily talking to my friend richard who's on lesbos still and you do one thing you set up one thing let's say a distribution Mm -hmm. and the next day it might be completely gone or you might have to move it you know or the island might be empty um and this is um maybe something we can talk about which is Moria which is the other camp.
0: Yeah, let's let's do that. So Moria is the registration camp, right, where um people have to go there first to register. Is that is that accurate when they kind of arrive on the shores do that they is, do they have a choice?
4: That's that's right, but <laughs> have you heard of Karatepe?
0: I've, I've heard of it. I'm not sure what it is, though. I don't know. I
4: okay. Well, Karatepe is another camp, but that camp is for Syrians only. Okay. That camp is for Syrian families only. So at Karatepe, you have a pretty organized structure of mostly NGOs and, and governmental organizations. Um, you don't have any self-organized volunteers there at all, because we went there to try and, and, and see what we could do. Um So Karatepe is for Syrians only, so when people arrive off the boat, I mean, maybe I should just go through a little timeline of what happens when people arrive.
0: Yes, please do.:
4: People come over through the evening through the day, through different, uh, they arrive at different parts of the island. They can arrive at Molivos at Scala, which is in the north of the island, and this is something people might have heard because it's very dangerous and rough and rocky, and this is where a lot of the ships are being overturned as well, or the boats get overturned because the waves are so high. So you have a lot of help there on the north end of the island. People also come in along the coast, where Pikpa is, is um, kind of in the, the middle, the further southeast end of the island. People are coming in there all the way up to the south end of the island. When they arrive by boat, usually by rubber raft, uh, they're traveling maybe an hour and a half or two hours across the sea, depending on the trip, on the voyage. The boats are packed. Um, usually you have uh, someone trying to guide them in. Now, where I was, and I was out there sometimes in the morning with the boats um, in the in the early dawn, there's no one out there helping so you do have a lot of teams that are helping up in the north again, but along the rest of the coast, people are completely independent, guiding themselves in in the dark into the shore. And usually there's one person that's trained um, at the coast of Turkey to use the motor on the rubber raft. So uh, people are coming in. They're usually screaming. <laughs> um, you know, it's very hectic. They have these life vests on, these... Rubber tubes, which you can see all a bunch of photographs, images of all these discarded items across the beach. They come in um, onto the shore, and pretty much people know right away that they need to walk to the port. So they do have smartphones. People are in contact. Um, They know what's going on. So they get off. They get themselves together, and they walk to the port, which is about maybe, it it depends, um, an hour to two-hour walk. Now, I also want to stress that it's illegal to pick up refugees by car, and it, it is illegal for the public buses to pick up refugees. It was when I left. I heard that now if you call into the police and you give them your license plate number, that mm. you can give people a ride. Oh, my. <laughs> so depending on where they are, they either can walk up to the port, or if people come in from the north, they, hop, they, they walk directly to Moria. In general, people are all going to Moria, unless they know they are going to Tepe, which is the Syrian-only camp. So I have a, they I, at, I have a, I have a question
0: before we go before we go for, forward. So <clears throat> these rafts that are, that are you know the people arriving on rafts they have their life jackets. Where are they getting? Where are they boarding these rafts? Where are they Where are they coming from to get to Lesbos?
4: Yeah, they are um, waiting out on the coast of Turkey. I have a friend, Afghani friend, Dabi, who is now in Finland. He's in a camp in Finland. Um, he told me that they had waited in near Istanbul for about a week or two until they were given the go-ahead that they were able to go in the raft and cross the sea because usually the smugglers are the people that are selling these trips, you know, organize a group of people. They take the money, and then they say, okay, we're going to leave at this day. So like my friend Zabi, he said that they were waiting. They were basically living outside. You know, a lot of people are just waiting, camping outside until they get to the go ahead to get into the boat. So they're coming from the coast of Turkey. Okay. You have to remember that each step of the way when people are making this passage, and whether they're coming from Syria, from Afghanistan, or Iraq, or wherever, they're crossing by foot and by car across these countries into Turkey, into the coast, because this is all done very, you know, illegally. This is done with the, the possibility of kidnapping, um, extortion, uh, you know, each step of the way you're paying a little bit of money. This isn't an easy journey where you pay a fee and then you take a plane to the coast of Turkey and you get in a rubber raft, right? Right. This <laughs> like, is
0: a, It's a really vulnerable situation. Yes okay Yes. so they've taken they've they've boarded boats in turkey they've they've gotten they've off-boarded in uh lesbos on the ro- on rocky coasts or otherwise to hopefully the the helpful hands of volunteers like yourself and then um make start start making the walk to moria or to the port that's right okay that's right so let's take march us forward through this Aaron.
4: What oh my happened.
0: gosh! I know we've got about we've got about maybe like ten or fifteen minutes more to kind of explore this, and and of course we can always continue this another time. Um, but but let's let's keep going while we can. And again, if you're out there listening, you're listening to Women's Magazine on MutinyRadio.fm. FM, and we're talking about uh, the refugee crisis and Erin, uh, who is there volunteering in Greece. Uh, please go on. Um. Oh
4: my gosh, Moria. Well, I was there at the end of. I guess it was maybe early November. So as of now, the story has really changed because it's um, becoming quite cold there. The sea is becoming rough. And a lot of stuff has, infrastructure has changed. When I arrived to Moria, like I said, I volunteer on Skid Row. Um, I would say Skid Row is actually the worst situation I've ever seen as of right now. But Moria was pretty um, comparable because, It is a garbage wasteland filled with people with no sanitation, no shelter, no food, no blankets. Now, this is just from when I was there at that time. Um, Moria is an ex-prison that they're using as a camp, the registration camp. What happens is um, you you go and get fingerprinted, registered with the police. Then you can get your 30-day paper of... Being in Greece, and then you move on and go to this Macedonia border. Um, as of now, I heard there's a Danish group that came to Moria to help more people register because they were only able to register 200 people a day. People, you get a number. It's like as if you're at a bakery. You get this little number, and you might get number like 3,100, and that means that your appointment wouldn't be until five days from then. Okay. Uh, what was happening too is people were taking the numbers and going very enterprising copying the numbers and then selling the numbers so you might have a number but it might might not be valid because someone sold your number Wow. so there's a lot of that stuff that's going on Um, you know some people have decided to actually stay there and capitalize on it and make money now, when I was there, it was a horror story. I really have never seen anything like it in my life, and I really compared it to a concentration camp that I only know from visiting one, okay, the structure of it. Um, we're talking barbed wire, garbage everywhere, uh, people sleeping on cardboard. Uh, like I said, no sanitation. The only running water that I saw was a little figot that was um, coming out of the ground. Um, people, Moria's camp itself is serving food once a day. Huge lines that doesn't guarantee that everyone is going to get fed. Wow. Now, and I want to emphasize that specifically, this stuff is being, was at the time being structured by these agencies, NGOs and governmental agencies that were there, like UNHCR, uh, Doctors, Without, you know, um, uh, Doctors Without Borders, Doctors of the World, all these different organizations, right? So you can only, let's say if you're playing within the rules of Moria, you can only do what they say at the time that they say it's allowed. So what has happened now since then is a lot of self-organized volunteers like myself and Richard and my friend Danielle and all these different groups have now taken it upon themselves to reorganize and restructure the camp itself because basically no one was really doing anything. Also, the inside of the camp of Moria is intended, again, for Syrians only or for women and children. So inside the camp, you have these, I'm sure you saw these, Funny IKEA shelters, you know. IKEA gives these shelters to refugees, you know. Oh. That's what these shelters are. Product so placement this, there, huh? Yeah. Inside of the camp, you have these people that can stay in these shelters. Now, outside of the camp, which they have, had named Afghan Hill, is where there are probably double the people also staying but these people aren't necessarily recognized um, you know with the same in, in integrity inside the camp so they're often without things like blankets or tents
0: so um, is that because I was reading about that? Um, how a lot of people who show up are well, they're being distinguished at either designated as either refugees or as economic migrants. Mm-hmm. So, right. so what what do those terms mean? And and uh, you already just kind of told us a little bit about how it it makes a difference about how they're treated.
4: Yeah, and and again, it's also how how people are treating each other because you saw this on the ground, you know you saw that the Afghans were separate from, um, you know, the, the Bangladeshi guys would be over the hill or, you know, and I say guys because it is really a large amount of men. And I know in your question you had sent me, you asked about women and children, which I want to say also due to the culture, a lot of the time you have the women and children that are staying with or inside the tent. So um, if someone is speaking... Uh, medical attention or seeking food, it is not going to be the woman or, you know, the the matriarch who's going to go out and seek these things, right? So usually you have the men that are going to investigate um, how to get a blanket or getting the food for the family. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's very much true with that. I have been reading now, like I said, at the border, at the Macedonian-Greek border, they're now saying that... Syrians, I, um, Iraqi's and Afghans are able to come through. I don't I guess they're not considering them now economic migrants because they I think they were before and for me this is a bit problematic just from the stories that I've heard myself, you know, for instance my Afghani friend, you know, he was threatened by the Taliban, basically left his village, left his family behind. Um, he is running a, a a civil society group for women and suicide prevention group, and the Taliban got a hold of it, didn't like what he was doing. You know, he was prompted by his mosque, well, you should probably leave. People are being threatened, right, in their villages, in their homelands. This is a, the scary thing about deportation, is there's a very real aspect to it where people are leaving just to save the lives of themselves or even their families, even if they do leave their families behind. Um, yeah, the economic versus, I mean, refugee situation is so ridiculous to me. It's like, <laughs> it's like really, you know, we're really going to define it that way. But somehow, um, the EU or the UN decides that this is a good definition to control the the flow because it's bureaucracy, basically. Sure.
0: Yeah. And then back in no um, there was a, an article from back in November um Diego Cupolo wrote it. Um and in that article he he states a UN report stated that the camp's capacity this is Moria registration camp on Lesbos. Uh the camp's capacity is 410 people. But Fred Mortlett, the director of volunteer co- of volunteer's coordination in Lesbos said the camp normally hosts 2 to 4,000 people. He said, it's been lacking supply since the beginning, and because nothing has changed, it's become the worst refugee camp in the world.
4: Yeah, that's correct. I just read a statistic today, like 33 minutes ago, that the total arrival today in Lesbos was about 5,000.
0: Oh, my gosh.
4: And um, this is not to mention people who are still on the island who have not been registered yet. So you add up those numbers. Um, I just wanted to make a few points, too, that are... um, up-to-date from just talking to my friend earlier. He, I do want to stress as a self-organized volunteer and believing in that, that you have to understand that the police and all these other organizations uh, don't want that to happen, okay? So the more you're self-organized, the more you're gonna get trouble in setting up your structure. And these independent groups are actually the people that are getting the most stuff done. So when you're forced to kind of move around and change up your situation, you're having uh, less of a chance of actually getting need on the ground and distribution happening right away. And the big problem is, too, is there's a lot of donations. People don't have any problem donating. Um, But the problem is the distribution. So a lot of the stuff that's needed on the island is stuck in these truck trailers Maybe in Thessaloniki or in Athens or wherever, not able to get on the ground to Lesbos and then distributed properly, too. And again, with donations, people send the wackiest things, you know? It's like, like do we really need a bunch of summer skirts from a 10-year-old girl? Uh, no. <laughs> you know? Really, there's a need for blankets and tents and infrastructure. And um, as of now, Moria, Richard told me that there is, it has changed drastically. There's like a chai tent. I know there's some medic tents. Um, There's some more distribution facilities that are independent Mm -hmm. out of these inside-the-camp organizations because also inside the camp, they have a time structure when you're allowed to get something. So you can only get clothing between uh, 2 and 4, but you have to be registered, you know. Oh, you can get a blanket, but the Red Cross passes them out at 3 in the morning.
0: Oh, so we're great, dealing with great. that
4: kind of stuff. Yeah. So um, as of now, it's like homeless shelters. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Same, same, same thing. Um, so as of now, I think Moria is a little bit more. Um, there's plenty of people helping, uh, but the problem again is distribution and just maintaining it without the hassle of all of this high high hierarchy um, leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I did talk to my friend and he said that he thinks that, um, you know, the action needs to be now put to in these two camps in France, the Calais and Dunkirk, that are actually the last resort camps. I think Dunkirk is actually the worst, considered the worst refugee camp right now because people are now stuck there for years. Um, So So. the idea of, of setting up some structure or helping within these camps is great. But really the concept needs to be in a flow that we need to be thinking about how to move ourselves and the help needed according with the season, you know, because Lesbos is going to become so cold. We don't know if the population is going to drop off from coming over to the Aegean, if people are just going to decide to stay on the coast and get a job, rent a place until they can cross in the summer. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. So, so it's just, a,
0: as you said earlier, it's a constantly evolving, uh, constantly changing situation. And... Um, Aaron Aaron Webber, thank you so much for okay, giving, giving me I can a call today. I know and you know what? I, I mean, I invite you we can we'll, we'll be in touch after the show. Um okay. I'd, I'd love to have you call back in and we can follow up on this. Uh, we do have to wrap up now. But okay. um, do you have any um, th- real quick, do you have any uh, information or where pe- how people can get involved or help or or um, maybe some of the organizations that I know you were self-organized volunteer but um, any, any suggestions?
4: Sure. Um, you can, anyone can email me at weworkforpeace at gmail.com, and then I'm happy to um, uh, give out information if anyone wants to know where to volunteer, send donations, or anything else. So weworkforpeace at gmail.com.
0: Aaron, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you for, now. thank you for reporting, but more importantly, thank you for going and doing the work that you're doing and putting those, putting the, your, uh, your heart and your compassion on the ground there to help welcome those people who are, uh, fleeing these horrendous situations. And, and like you said, we just, uh, we need the love and the compassion, uh, to, to make those human connections and, uh, build towards something better. And this, Ever changing process. <laughs>
4: That's right. Thank you so much. And, and a happy new moon blessing to you and everyone out there.
0: Thank you so much. And to you as well. Uh, and we'll be in touch soon. Aaron Weber, thank you.
4: Thanks, sister. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.
0: All right. Thank you everyone for listening to Women's Magazine. I'm Global Val. And remember, just when your aspirations seem outrageous, like, hey, I'm gonna go to Greece and